Hello and welcome to episode 13 of Bike Karma, where we try and bring all types of bicycles and all types of people together. If you're wondering why the 13's upside down, check out the book The Voluminati. I'm your host, Tom Brown, and you can reach me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com. But for now, let's talk about what's going to be in this episode. This time, we have three segments for you. Alice Nelson from Florida joins us. She's a yoga instructor and an avid cyclist. She talks about being present and yoga for cyclists. We also talk to Fred Thomas from AD Bikes about brands and bringing back a beloved brand. And then we fill in a gap in society by finally providing you with a cautionary fairy tale to read your children to keep them from being bicycle thieves. All of that and more this time on Bike Karma. Thanks for coming along for the ride. segment that's been a long time coming yoga breathing stretching and being present for the cyclist okay well welcome to this segment of bike karma i am really happy to have alice nelson from florida on with me she is a yoga instructor one of the early listeners to bike karma when i first started last year everybody i talked to wants to do yoga who's a cyclist but it's one of those things that people want to do but don't necessarily translate into doing so i really wanted to get her on to talk about her cycling she's an avid cyclist and a yoga instructor and just go through it so welcome alice thank you very much for being so patient thank you tom for having me i really appreciate it I mean, it's been months that we've been talking about doing this, so I appreciate yes, you being yes. patient. When I started listening to you about seven or eight months ago, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for being patient. So well, thank you. when I talk to people, everybody who wants to be a cyclist for the long term, everybody mm-hmm. acknowledges the benefits of yoga and good diet yes. and good everything. And it's one of those habits that's part of a healthy life. And yet not many of us have the self-discipline to do it. There's this disconnect between what we feel like we should be doing and what we're actually doing sometimes, you know, and sometimes it is sitting in to watch a movie instead of going for a ride. And sometimes it is, you know, not doing that half an hour a day that could be so beneficial for those people who it's New Year's and a lot of people do the New Year's resolutions and such like that. Yeah, I figured we'd, we'd have a little talk about yoga. So we all acknowledge the benefits of flexibility and doing stretches where does stretching end and yoga begin okay well yoga basic hatha yoga is the stretching part of yoga itself but when you completely think about when you go to a yoga class an instructor is getting you through it which is basically a physical exercise he or she is also trying to have you connect with mentally how these sensations are going through your body so it's good to coordinate your breathing with the stretching and those elements you can kind of more tune in i feel like to your exact bike muscles and it also keeps you more pliable so when you're doing all that forward flexion on the bike I get off the bike and don't have quite as many pains sometimes. And I believe it's from the yoga because I've stretched out either before or after or I've taken a class the night before. So stretching, you can do just basic stretching, but then you can be present with your stretching. How exactly do your muscles feel? Are you holding your breath? Are you crunching your eyebrows as you do it? Like exactly your physical response to the stretch besides the regular stretching your hamstrings, you're stretching your quads, you're stretching your back. It's more an emotional connection and a breath connection, a prana connection, an energy connection with exactly how your body feels when it stretches. So it kind of brings you like in the here and now with your physical body through the practice of yoga, which then benefits not only biking, everything, your job, your driving, your relationships with your friends, your family, your kids, your dogs. Or your cat, yeah, or your any animal, or your fish, or your birds, or any anything like that. Absolutely. It's helped me significantly in then being more present when I'm on my bike and how my body feels. Because a lot of us got like, okay, I've got this big plan ride. I'm going to do this, either this mountain bike, whatever your biking style is. 
and sometimes have a plan what you want to do. And sometimes you get on the bike and your body doesn't want to do what you mentally have set up to do. So you sometimes it's a good idea to adjust that. And you, I feel like the yoga has helped me honor physically where I am and what I can do on the bike. So it becomes much more of a practice that's not just physical, but it starts physical. I'm not sure. I hope that makes sense. No, it, it's all making sense. The When you eat mindlessly, you know, right. and that's that's something that everybody recognizes that they've done at least once or twice. You're just pounding in popcorn and you're not really thinking about each right. bite. But uh, you go out on a bike ride and sometimes you'll be so distracted by the thoughts of the day and you'll have the loops of right. conversations going on in your mind. And then you realize that out of an hour long bike ride, you really were only present for about 10 minutes of that sensation right. of flying. And it takes you all that time to decompress. So this sounds like it's bringing that same mindfulness to the element of stretching and basically you're doing breathing awareness and stretching at the same time which is ideally what the way you would want to live in general is to be present right. in your life and feel the moment and not be distracted by things so regardless of whether you're eating biking or or stretching that's being in the moment and breathing help to kind of short circuit that. So tell me about the breathing. So the breathing, you know, you can do kind of, it's also energy force. And so a lot of yoga classes will start with a, deep, a breathing exercise of some sort. You can do alternate nostril, deep breathing, short breathing, whatever it is you're trying to do. They gear towards different energies. And, you know, in, in any physical activity you do, you need oxygen, which requires breathing. So I know a lot of times when I'm cycling, I'm not even thinking about my breathing. And then suddenly something will bring, okay, how are you breathing? What terrain is right now? Are mm -hmm. you at a stoplight? Are you at a traffic light? Where you then sometimes if you're stressed out about the road situation, too, that changes your breathing. Because emotionally, we change with our breathing, too. Like when we get excited, sometimes we breathe less. And having that source of fuel for your body, oxygen, when you need it, is a good thing to be conscious of, like when you get to a stressful situation in the road. When it starts raining and you're on your bike, immediately it sets up a different hazard, right? Because then it's slippery and the mm -hmm. white lines get slippery and you know you don't want to go over any metal. So if you're completely conscious of those situations as you're on your bike, certainly not, there's no guarantee for safety. But if you're a little bit more mindful of the different road situations that are going to come at you from a present situation, you can then use your breath and your physical strength and your whatever you're dealing with on the bike, the kind of bike you have and how it responds. I think just is a little bit I don't safer. I don't know if safer is the right word, but more conscious of exactly what's happening in front of you. Mentioned. More in the zone. Yeah, in the zone, right? And you just mention it. You can sometimes go out maybe after work and you're thinking about your day and the conversations you had. And then it's great. You still got your ride in. And it's like, it certainly helped you with stress release because the physical activity certainly helps our body deal with stress. It can help with stress, definitely. The yoga being present and then the physicalness on the bike also helps with that. That's one reason why I think the two are so great together. We've all seen pictures online of people with big quads and calves, and that's all great. But those quads and calves need to stretch in order to stay pliable also. And as we age, flexibility, we lose flexibility. So when you went out on that bike ride when you were 20 and then came home and you felt great and then you went out with your friends and you go drinking or go to the movies or whatever it is you want to do, when you get to be 40, that's a little bit harder. So it's really good to add the flexibility training in through the practice you can even just do stretching if you don't want to do the yoga because yoga, hatha yoga is the stretch. But when you add the mindfulness to it, it becomes something more like a life-changing event. Maybe you're more present when you're doing it. It's a lot about little changes. As a cyclist, one little teeny tiny change, but that became a part of my life was just to remember not to lock my elbows. And yeah, and I would change. hear that it's something where I know when I'm not present, I'm locking my elbows on the bike. And it right, could be road, it could be touring. When I relax my elbows and I drop my arms into a more sublime position, 
all of a sudden I'm breathing better and now I take it to the next step and it's almost like telling somebody to fake it till they make it a little bit. That little step, little steps, baby steps towards yoga and cycling. If I can do that with my arms and get my arms to unlock and then I start Mm -hmm. breathing, start just being aware of maybe try and get 15 minutes aware and present on my ride instead of the 10 minutes that I had the previous ride. What could I do breathing wise to kind of just be that Uh, little first step? Help that? Yeah. Well, breathing We have two lungs. They have three lobes. And the left lung is actually a little bit smaller than the right lung because of the placement of the heart. In everyday human activity, we use about a third of that lung capacity because, you know, driving in the car and making dinner and working at a computer, you don't, your body, when you're not consciously thinking about your breathing, really only needs to use that amount of your lung capacity for your body to work because it's not moving that much. And then when you consciously try to fill your lungs up to its maximum capacity, so all three of those lobes are full, your body then is going to get more fuel in terms of the oxygen that it needs to then do the downstroke, the upstroke, even gripping the handlebars or whatever it is you're doing, whatever kind of biking you're doing. So you can kind of conserve energy and have more energy by being conscious of your breathing, like going up a hill. Like a lot of times when I've done some of these week-long trips, you go past people and it's like, you know, these short breaths. And, you know, I do it too because your body needs to feel quickly. But mm-hmm. then if you can once in a while take a deep breath, you know, I don't know the science behind it, but it's going to help you have more energy. And it's also deep breathing can calm you down. It's yoga breathing. It's really about just being conscious of anything that's in front of you, whether you're giving birth, riding a bike, working at a computer, Walking your dog, any of it can be benefited by just thinking how you're breathing and what you're taking in in that air. But then it just makes you more conscious of the quality of the air that you're taking in where you're riding. City riding, mountain riding where the oxygen is different because the oxygen is less. So just being conscious of how that is breathing-wise to physical-wise is just going to help you in lots of situations. We then talked a little bit about doubt and hesitation with getting started. Oh my God, I can't do a split and I can't do all these moves that you think your yoga class is comprised of like splits or whatever it is people think about yoga. Just take a basic yoga class. You don't have to be Gumby or Guru to get benefits. And the yoga that I do teach the most is hot yoga, which is based on the Bikram series. And they are basic moves. They are not anything that the general population can't do. It's moving your spine in six directions. It's opening your hamstrings, which every cyclist, every runner, pretty much every human being has tight hamstrings. So when you when you do the stretching, it just makes your body more pliable during those activities. So you don't rip a muscle. There's no guarantees in a lot of things in life, but it will absolutely help your muscles respond better to pretty much every activity that you do. For a lot of us, we're in it for the long game, and we want to be Mm -hmm. going for the long time. We want to be that, you know, like that gentleman this last week who's 105 trying to break the hour record. Oh, he's 105 years old going around a velodrome. It's a beautiful thing. Oh my God, wow. And I think a lot of us have that as our our long-term dream rather than being on the podium now we want to just be on the bike 20 years from now 30 years from now right so keeping that conditioning going and just having that feeling basic basic breathing if i was to just sit down and i'm going to say just uh stretch out should i be breathing in through my nose out through my mouth what what should i be breathing as i stretch okay well, depending on your school of thought, on you know, there's different schools of yoga, and they're like wildflowers. It's like whatever one you gravitate towards. I don't really think there's, there's a whole lot of wrong ways to breathe, but let's say you're doing a stretch and you want to stretch out your hamstring. You do want to take 
slower, deeper breaths because it also is going to calm your body down than short, quick, like breaths. So your body will be more responsive in terms of letting those muscles open to the stretch if the breathing is fuller and deeper and slower. So the goal is full and deep. Well, it is, except that, you know, a lot of people have a hard time taking deep, slow breaths. And so that's okay. You don't beat yourself up because you can't do that the whole time because you, everybody has their own natural pattern of breathing, just like everybody has a, my cadence is different than yours. And individual is a part of your body's function that we all do, but it might be a different rate also. Were you ever a smoker? How old are you? Where do you live? You know, as the air quality. So I think you want to be conscious of deep, slow breathings when you're doing some of those stretches. But at the same time, don't beat yourself up over it. If you, you go back to your natural pattern of breath, fine. There's no wrong way to do it as long as you're thinking about it. So it's that easy. If you can think about how your breathing is responding to a lot of things, it's going to help you deal with it, even when it's just one breath. Most teachers are telling you to breathe through your nose because your nose filters the air. That's why there's hair in your nose. So it does. It's like an automatic filter system. Generally, they're not going to be saying, okay, breathe in and out through your mouth. It's just, I don't think I've ever heard that. It's going to be in through your nose and out through your mouth or in through your nose and out through your nose if you can do it. But sometimes, like, you need a gulp of water. Sometimes you need a gulp of air. And the quickest way to get air in your body is through your mouth. So if you somehow take a deep breath through your muscle, it's, it's all fine. It's more of a conscious awareness of your respiratory system. And if you think about all your organs in your human body, you can change how your respiratory response by a thought. You can say, okay, I'm going to hold my breath now because I'm swimming, or I'm going to take a deep breath because it's stressful now. And you can't do that with your tummy, with your liver. I mean, sure, we can control what we put in our body, which is certainly going to affect how those organs respond. But you can't suddenly say, okay, Tommy, don't have an ache, or don't be hungry, or don't want to go to the bathroom. You can't mentally have a thought and control those organs. But with your lungs, you kind of can. You can have a thought that you want to take a deep breath, and you can do it right then. And so that in and of itself can be a tool for life. You can you can't live five minutes without air, but you can live days without water and probably weeks without food. What is your regime like? Do cycling, you do yoga. What does a typical cycling workout look like for you? I'm like a lot of, like, I don't get off my bike and then immediately, like, do yoga postures while my bike is still next to me. I don't. I want to get off and I want to go eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich too if I'm starving or whatever it is. So generally the yoga for me will be, I if I can bike 30 miles, that's a great ride for me. And then I would love to do an hour or an hour and a half class later in the day. It's not necessarily, I don't necessarily do the biking and the stretching right after. I'll sometimes pause and do the second workout later of the yoga. You can use the bike actually to do stretches. You can put your leg up on the um, seat and do a hamstring stretch. You could just fold forward and do a hamstring stretch. You could just do separate your legs far apart and hang forward, and that's a hamstring stretch. Also, it lengthens your back because, you know, on the saddle, we're always in forward flexion, so the back tends to get, like, you know, rounded, even though I know you're supposed to kind of straighten in and not lock your arms and all that. So, I mean, you can do some basic stretches, which you could consider yoga or just stretching after a ride that would help you as well. What you yep. mentioned about locking the elbows, that in and of itself is a nice awareness of how you ride because a lot of people are gripping those handlebars like too tight and then that energy is really taken away from their pedal stroke. The good takeaway for that for me is that when you don't have the self-discipline to do something that you kind of know you should be doing, you come up with rationalizations. Right about why you shouldn't right. do it. So my rationalizations were always, if I can't stretch right after I'm done, then forget about it, maybe next time. 
you know, I would, I would you get know, done I with the ride and I would, I would, I'd have to take the kids somewhere or something like that. I'd have to switch gears. Right. And so this is nice to know that, you know, I'm going to be able to wait and just later that night do even a little bit of time. What do you think? Is it worth it doing like say 10 minutes? If I just Absolutely. start with 10 minutes, am I fooling myself or is 10 minutes great. okay? No, 10 minutes is great. I'm sure there's a ton of YouTube videos that are 10 minute yoga videos. Um, 10 minutes is great. You don't you don't have to do an hour or an hour and a half. 15, 10 minutes is fine. It's whatever you can factor in. And if you can make 10 minutes a regular schedule, that, that's great. Okay. It doesn't have to be a huge long class. It really doesn't. When you go for fitness, usually assessment, they do... One of the things that they test is flexibility because as we age, we lose flexibility. It's just one of those joys of aging. And sometimes when we lose flexibility, we're more likely to get injured because the muscles are not so pliable when they're challenged in a way that is sudden, like getting tears or whatever. So it will benefit you health-wise just to do the stretching in terms of your body's flexibility as it ages. My favorite cycling, some of my favorite holidays, doing Bikes Florida in March. And it's like a week long and you camp and they give you the root sheet and you go out the day and then you either go to another place. Most of these week-long rides, though, I've noticed because I've been doing this. I rode across the country in 2006 on my bicycle. And now a lot of these week-long rides offer yoga at the end of the day. Like they'll have a four or five o'clock yoga session. And there's a ton of people taking yoga after they've ridden 80 miles and they've gotten their shower and their tent set up. And then a lot of times, like, it's, a lot of times they're camping at high schools or community centers and they just have, people don't even have mats come in here and they're just doing basic stretches. Somebody, they've gotten either somebody from town or another rider is teaching yoga and it's sometimes they're only half hour classes because we all want to eat after those rides, you know, everybody's famished. And so... There are a lot of bike things that are offering yoga as well to help riders be more pliable in their quest to go 80 miles the next day, whatever the miles are. This has inspired me. My biggest excuse so far is probably the lamest excuse I've ever heard before. Are you ready? <laughs> What's that? Yeah. The coffee table's in the way. <laughs> the coffee table's in the way? The coffee table's yeah, in the way. Can... That's pretty lame, isn't it? I mean, I got to just move that coffee table this year. So my goal this year is to move the coffee table out of the way. You know what? A really a, a nice one to do, which you can do for not even a minute when you get off the bike. And I talk about it a lot when I teach. It's this posture called ragdoll. Ragdoll. Where, like, you basically just hang from your weight. You know, like your upper body hangs from your hips down. And you straighten your legs. And you just let your face muscles relax, your spine gets to lengthen, and your hamstring stretch. It's a really restorative posture. Excellent. I mean, I think some people want to be careful with their head below their heart if they have a heart condition. Mm -hmm. But that's just a really, and you can just do that and take a couple of deep breaths, and you will feel your spine start to lengthen and your hamstrings open. And that, you can do that for just a minute. Not even, really. Just fold forward and take three deep breaths, and it will help. Okay. That sounds great, and that sounds just as easy as not locking your elbows. Exactly. Don't yeah. lock your elbows and, like, and do the ragdoll. Okay, right. awesome. Right. And, you know, you don't lock, obviously you don't lock your knees when you're cycling, but you can lock your knees when you do that posture because your legs are not, you know, you're not bouncing. Thank you very much, Alice. I'm so glad I finally got to talk to you. It's a little bit selfish because this is something I myself want to kick myself in the pants to be able to do. I really enjoyed talking to you. And where would people go Thanks if they so want? Where would people go if they want to look at more of your stuff? The only social media account I have is on that Instagram account. Just find yoga anywhere. Okay. Where you are. Just Google yoga in, in your town, and something's going to come up. Or go to your gym and look at the look at the fitness class schedule and just try that or just 
Google Yoga, Google Hot Yoga, Google Bike Yoga, all of that, something's going to come up. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. Hopefully we'll talk to you again someday. Yeah, I hope so too. Thank you. Okay. For better or worse, we all have preconceived notions about certain bicycle brands. Some brands we like, some brands we don't. Let's do a little experiment, me and you, right now. So I'm going to do like a brand Rorschach test. And I want you to just kind of think of what pops into your mind when I mention these certain brands. Here we go. Some of them you might know, some of them you won't know, some of them you like, some of them you won't like. GT. Specialized, Raleigh, Giant, Cannondale, Cult, On One, Richie, Triumph, Denelt, BSA, PK Ripper, Huffy, Trek, Mongoose, Columbia, Schwinn, Surly, Moots, AMF, Hercules, Shogun, Nishiki, Bridgestone, Bianchi, DeRosa, Kabuki, Workman, Miata, Dawes, Murray, Muddy Fox. Okay, and now for the final one. Just insert any name you're gonna get mad at me for not saying. So even if you didn't recognize some of the brands, just the name itself probably caused some type of image or feeling to pop into your mind based on your experiences in life. But once you have a brand that you really like, let's say Schwinn, for example, a lot of people think of Schwinn's as only those Schwinn's which were made in Chicago. The name itself when plastered onto another bike, like the modern Schwinn's that you can buy at a big box store, it causes mixed feelings for people who really like that brand name. One, they're happy not to see it totally go away forever, but secondly, they're disappointed in the way it's being used currently, maybe. So it's a fine line that gets walked between nostalgia and bringing a brand back to life without losing that fan base. So how does one do it the right way? How do you take a brand that's gone extinct and bring it back in a way that honors the past but looks towards the future? A lot of people have very strong opinions on some of the old names which are being just slapped on bikes. But what if you tried to do it the right way? I met a guy at the National Cyclocross Championships who is trying to do that very thing with his favorite brand, Ostro Daimler. Okay, so we're here for Bike Karma, and I am at the Cyclocross National Championships in Hartford, Connecticut, and I ran into a bicycle stand that's out here in the snow and the cold with generator noises and everything going on in the background. And I meet Fred Thomas, president of AD Bikes, the modern face of Austro Daimler Cycling and the bike company of the future. All right, so when we look at bikes, we all have like memories and nostalgia and certain bikes will make you think. I love Le Mans because they make me think of that golden age of racing that I really like a lot where Greg Le Mans won the Tour de France. And when we look at Ostro Daimler, you know, that just evokes such a rich history of bikes. So you saw that this brand was no longer being produced, and you said, I'm going to pick up the torch and run with it. Yeah, well, the story is a little, is very much that with a twist. Um, I used to race an Ostro Daimler Superlike when I was a youth, and I wanted to do so again as, as a master's category and Cat 2 racer. No, you said that perfectly. Could you say that again? The, the German accent on it? Oh, did I use a German accent? Superlike. Superlike. Super light. Super light. Nice. Yeah, that's that's how it was known um, in the market, and um, it's how um, that's how it's known today. I've preserved the names, I've preserved the colors, but I have reimagined the brand for the 21st century. So. 
Um, that means I use carbon frames um, for the road and arrow road and time trial uh, and cross frame sets. But the colors are, are, are still going and um, the spirit remains the same. And you're also doing steel bikes as well? Uh, yeah, we're also doing steel. The difference there is we use Reynolds 850 steel rather than Reynolds 531. The wider diameter tubes, threadless steer tubes, things like that. 11 speed compatibility. But again, the colors are the same and the names are the same um, so that the, the spirit can be preserved. So tell me more about the history of the brand. Like, sure. how far back do they go? Well, it goes back over 100 years. I mean, Mr. Daimler was making cars in Austria and he called that company Austro Daimler because um, that's that's where it was and that's where the customers were. Um, and the story goes that he, he left and went back to Germany, but the factory and the, the corporation continued to go um, for well over 100 years making all sorts of things including weapons and armored vehicles and mopeds, which were known as Puch mopeds, and that resonates a little <laughs> bit with, with people. And they also made bikes, and when they came in the United States, they, they used Puch name and they used the Oster Daimler name. Um, but the, the company uh, went out of business, I guess, in the early 80s because of other um, competitive pressures. And that was it. And um, I uh, was fortunate enough to be able to obtain the rights to the trademark. And, um, and here we are now. So it's like you, you fell in love with these bikes while you were racing back in the day, I, and now you took on the right. you took over the company i mean i know here I how, who can do that I you know, know somebody I, races a car they don't take over gm <laughs> later well, in life you know this I guess is amazing these, these opportunities only happen now because uh, information is is better and yeah i mean i can't believe it i'm, I'm president of the company that, that, that produces the bikes that i raced when i was a kid and i made the racing team finally i mean i, I remember as a youth desperately wanting a jersey and and just not being able to find one and i desperately wanted to ride on the Ultima, which was the, the, the Thorndorf purple version of the, of the bike. And I just, you know, there's no way of finding out how to get it or where to find it. But um, now uh, it's all here. I mean, there's no shortage of bikes here at the national championships. Oh, yeah. I was drawn to your display. Oh, you know, it's thanks. beautiful. They're beautiful bikes. I mean, it would be the type of thing where you could put it on the wall or you, yeah. you'd want to you ride it out every That's time you look at it. How do you go about reviving a brand that has such a history and such a style of its own and take it into the next iteration? How do you take it I into just, the uh, next? I think I use my imagination. I try and put myself in the position of, of um, the consumer a little bit and then I look at the history. And what I've done is I've, I've obtained all the old original frames in the secondary market and I've rep replicated the colors exactly and transferred the color to the new ones um, just because it's easy. <laughs> it's easier that way and but also there's there's a certain simple appeal to the way bikes were produced in, in the 70s and the 80s and, and um, that's I think that's that's the way I've done it. I mean a lot of people might hear this initially mm -hmm. not having sat face to face sure. with you and they might say something like you know, in the jaded world, yeah. you know, so many of these old names have been taken and slapped yeah. onto mass market bikes, sure, yeah. trying to evoke and kind of trick people into that. And I can see that you have a passion for the old bikes, so you're trying to bring that into it. So when you bring that passion, yeah. what are the things that you're looking at to bring from one generation to the mm -hmm. next? What are those things that you want to carry over right. that kind of pushes that? I, I think, yeah, I mean, I have an emotional connection to this. There are a lot, of, as you say, there are a lot of um, old names that have been reintroduced. and. The difference is that I used to race one when I was a youth and so I feel this emotional connection and I still race and so I, I get out there and I race the bike that I used to race. I don't know, I mean I think I'm trying to um, to signal that you know that you can race as a masters and you can channel the, the spirit of the past but also enjoy the benefits of the present, have a little bit of both worlds and um, I don't know, I mean it resonates with some people. <laughs>
but I, I really want the bike company to be the bike company of the future. I don't want to go down the same track that every other company has traveled. It's the 21st century, we have the internet, there are new ways of doing things, and that's why the frame sets are, are primarily available as, as frame sets, because most cyclists already have wheels, and if they want components, they're going to get them online overseas. I would rather find a way to go directly to the consumer without sort of cutting out the bike shop so that everyone can be satisfied. And add to that, I'm just not big enough to, to order <laughs> thousands of frames and, and, and stuff them into the retail network, and I probably never will be. But um, that's, that's the part of the mission. Well, it's, they're beautiful bikes. I love what you're doing. So uh, I mean, it's it's sort of a, I'm sure it's a secret dream for anybody who's liked yeah, an extinct brand I know. to bring I, that brand back, I and know. you're kind of living the dream for the rest of us. So. Well, little thanks for, for um, pointing that out and, and inviting me to be on the podcast, and you can certainly see more about the, the company at adbikes.com. That's a-dbikes.com, and certainly if you have any questions, you can simply just call me on the phone and I'll, I'll pick it up and, and we will talk bikes. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. Take care. The golden rule is to treat others the way you want to be treated. That means you don't steal other people's bikes. But people do. Sometimes it's just an impulse. You see a bike leaning on the side of a tree and somebody steals it. Other times, it's somebody who wakes up in the morning every day and goes out intending to steal bikes. Some bikes are even stolen to order. That's who this story is directed at. Not the person who temporarily has a bad day and makes a bad choice on impulse, but the person who wakes up every day and thinks that this is a great idea. So without further ado, here is a cautionary fairy tale to deter people from becoming bicycle thieves. Hope you like it. Our scene opens on a boy returning home after school. His dad opens the door and looks worried. Hey dad. Hey, uh, your teacher called today. Yeah, we had a career day at school. It was fun. Yeah, that's what she wanted to talk to me about. She said you walked around all day stuck on one particular idea for your future career? Yep, I picked up a good one. Well, that's debatable. In case you got it wrong, tell me what career you chose. Bike thief. Bike thief. Bike thief. Bike thief. Bike thief. Dad, I want to be a bike thief. And not only that, I think I'd be really good at it. What now? Why would you want to do that? Bike thieves, the professional ones who go out every day to steal bikes, are some of the most hated people in the world. Well, haters gonna hate! But why would you pick a job, a career path that is morally wrong, and hurt so many people's feelings? Why? Well, Dad, it's all about risk to reward. Gotta risk it for the biscuit, Dad. The odds of me paying back a college loan for some random career based on one of my interests is a gamble. Bike thievery is easy, especially if you have an angle grinder. You almost never get caught, and even when you do get caught, the conviction rate is almost non-existent. It's a no-brainer. Wait, what about all the people you'd hurt? I mean, deeply hurt. People love their bikes. Taking someone's bike is kind of like taking someone's horse in the last century. Look, Dad, an amateur would take any old mutt of a bike. I'd be a pro. The people who can afford $3,000 bike and a $200 lock can afford to take the hit. I can't believe you're talking like this. Take the hit? Look, this isn't how your mom and I raised you. Look, Dad, income for a bike thief in a major city, if you're willing to work, is comparable to that of a starting teacher or a nurse's aide. I'd have a middle-class lifestyle and be able to support all of those charities that you and Mom do. This is just so wrong, though. I think I'm going to have to pull out the big guns, dude. Remember the stories I used to tell you when you were little? Goodnight Moon? No, 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 the other ones. Oh, you mean the fairy tales. Yeah, the cautionary fairy tales. Dad, I'm almost a teenager. I know, but you learned a lot from those stories. Look, do you go around rubbing strange-looking lamps? No. Do you ever eat candy houses in the woods? No. Can you tell the difference between your grandmother and a wolf dressed up in cold water creek clothing? Yes. 
So I guess they did teach you a lesson, huh? Yeah, you're right. And I guess I gotta include one more cautionary tale. Yeah. The cautionary fairy tale of what happens to bike thieves. Once upon a time in your very favorite city, everyone is born a bit different. 45 was the nickname of a professional bike thief in a story. It was given to him when he lost a bet that he could grind through a certain U-lock in 30 seconds, but it actually took him 15 seconds longer. You would totally look past him in a crowd, but having him pointed out to you, you would start to notice how many layers had gone into his working outfit. Looking even more closely, you would see he had a microfleece hat underneath his ball cap, a contrasting jacket was carefully hidden beneath his hoodie, and even his snap-up basketball pants were hiding a pair of jeans underneath. He was a master of changing his looks quickly. He practiced at home, so that in the street, either turning around the corner or ducking into a coffee shop after a thwarted theft, he would re-emerge in seconds looking like a totally different person. He even had fake glasses he would put on that would totally mess with the recognition skills of any adrenaline-pumped pursuer. He could ditch the extra clothes in the garbage or in his backpack. Nothing he wore had any personal connection or value to him. This was his work outfit, and it was disposable. He had several different looks, none of which he wore when he was off-duty. He didn't steal for drugs. He stole to pay for his life, to rent, to buy nice things. Somewhat antisocial, 45's downtime was to play video games interacting with people online who didn't ask too many questions. The people he did meet and interacted with, and only when he really needed to, would have said there wasn't anything quirky about him other than his total lack of quirks. He mimicked the response of others, like people who smile at jokes even when in their eyes you could see that they didn't get it. He never stole a bike without a plan. He had three small storage units spread out in different parts of the city. He changed and rotated them often. He even had a few bikes that were not stolen. They were legit. He could take them out in public without risk. These were props like his clothes. They could be camouflaged while doing reconnaissance in an area, and he could also use them as bait to obtain customers at pop-up flea market and street markets around the city. He would have the nice, not-stolen bikes out for sale as bait, and a customer would come up. He'd strike up a conversation and was a master at prying out of a person exactly what bike they were looking for, size, model, color, you name it. He wasn't especially personable or friendly, but he worked every trick of hustlers to keep his marks talking. Once he got them to tell him exactly what bike they wanted and how much they wanted to pay for it, he'd suddenly seem to remember that he had one just like that, or maybe even a little better back home, but he didn't bring it with him that day. If the person left a phone number, he'd call them the next day or two and bring it around to them. He told them they could meet at a park or something, so that they didn't have to worry about him knowing where they lived. He made sure to make it sound like it was for their protecting. But the real reason is they wouldn't know where to find him afterwards. Well, that seems sketchy to me and you. People are great at what's called uh, suspending their disbelief when they want something. And the price he'd quote them would be irresistibly tantalizing. A flea market was just starting one Sunday morning when he was attempting to get ready for the exact setup that we've just talked about. That's how he met Mr. Vins. Mr. Vins was a man in his 40s that looked more like a hipster bartender than a cyclist. He stood out in a crowd, roundish pewter glasses, handlebar mustache, well-dressed in sort of a steampunk fashion. His clothing was modern interpretation of a casual vest and dark tweed coat from times past. You might see someone like Mr. Vins at an art show or a small theater producing something really artsy. On closer examination, you could tell that the guy had money. His mustache was immaculate and precise. His clothes were custom-tailored and of a high quality. Even his glasses had decorative yet subtle metalwork crafted into them that pronounced to the world that this man is quirky, but he has a lot of dough. A well-trained predator like 45, who this time introduced himself as Mike, saw him as a prime mark. What 45 missed, or maybe ignored, because as with most professional bike thieves, he lacked empathy, was a resigned sadness in Mr. Vin's eyes. If you were to have dinner with Mr. Vin's, you would find more in his eyes than that. 
Beyond a short meaning, you would start to become unnerved by what could only be described as a dark spark deep in his pupils. We can forgive 45, a.k.a. Mike, for missing that in his very brief encounter. Lou, I am uh, looking for a vintage-styled but newer bespoke 10-speed. Mike brought out a mid-range 10-speed from the four bikes he had with him, using every trick of body language he had mastered, not to offer it for sale, but to use it as a prop to keep the mock talking. Like this one with the drop racing bars? But, you know, obviously a higher quality hand-built model. What brand exactly were you looking for or what vintage? The quick follow-up questions made sure the man didn't dismiss the bike and walk away, but kept talking and giving details about the bike he was looking for. You know, I'm, I'm not sure of the brand, but it is certainly quality. The lug work is very ornate. The geometry is sublime. It is certainly a small craft builder of some type. I have seen a few of them around the Kendall cul-de-sac on the east side. Perhaps the frame builder works around there. The only markings on the ones I saw were the head badge and the top tube of the bike. It had no branding other than that. Yeah, well, sometimes they do that on uh, high-end, low-production number bikes to keep the clean lines and look. Uh, what would the head badge look like? Well, the head badge is a broken heart. I've tried to find the brand so far, but I am unsuccessful. No shops have proven to be helpful. If I am to only have one bicycle, I want it to be this kind. If you can help me secure one in my size, I will not only reimburse you the full retail price, but also give you a generous finder's fee. Yeah, uh, sure. I've heard that brand somewhere before. You know, it may take a couple days to remember where I had seen that particular one. Mr. Vince closed his eyes, nodding. Yes, that's understood. Of course. Here's my card. The card was simple and uncluttered, but screamed class and quality. It simply said Mr. Vince and a cell phone number. 45 thought it was a folding card at first that would open and reveal more, but it was only a $100 bill that had been folded behind it. I look forward to hearing from you soon. 45 stared as Mr. Vince turned away, amazed at the mark that had fallen into his pocket. It was only as Mr. Vince turned a corner that he realized his mouth was hanging open. 45 laughed despite himself. He would have to work a year searching for a mark as good as this one. Price seemed no object, and this guy even told him where to find him. Good thing too, because he had never seen that brand before. For a moment, a thought that the man might be part of a sting operation came into his head. It was kind of perfect, but quickly the details about his appearance flooded back, and each one was so precise and immaculate, he knew no undercover cop could have pulled it off. Just the tailored jacket alone would have been a whole paycheck for a detective. Panic actually did grip his mind, though, as he realized he hadn't gotten the man's frame size. He could guess and was really good at that, but what if he blew this whole deal by stealing the wrong size? The card dropped from his hand and landed face down. As he dove to catch his only connection to the lucrative deal, he saw on the back was written 58 centimeters, the frame size. Below that were three colors, maroon, white gold, or pewter. All this was written in sharp script from a fountain pen. Mr. Vin certainly was focused and knew what he wanted. This one deal could set him for a month, maybe two. He could be ahead on his rent or even move. He could rent the truck and get a new storage locker. He never liked to stay in one place too long. The newer the storage facility, especially the ones that just opened, the longer the heat would be off for at that location. Police usually like to look for established facilities and networks, which is how he stayed a step ahead. Always looking for the next place instead of staying too long at the last. He packed up. This was by far the best lead he was going to get, and he wasn't going to let it slip away. Later, he searched online. He knew hundreds of brands, makes, and styles knew their MSRPs and their street values. He knew how to change one part on a bike that would go unnoticed by a nervous buyer until they got home. And when he later sold that one part online, he would increase his profit by hundreds. He searched all the bespoke and frame builder blogs, but this brand did not come up. 
He found many custom-made heart badges on Instagram, but none of them was connected with a certain brand. After three long hours of frustration, he began to panic, thinking he would lose the mark. Then he stumbled onto broken heart cycles. The webpage was minimal. The shop made only 20 or so bikes a year, and you even had to apply for one to be built for you. When he clicked on the About tab, he saw a close-up of the head tube badge. It was a broken heart with the words please written on one half and the word don't written on the other. Below that it said the frame maker and bike building teams prefer their privacy and would rather have their bikes speak for themselves. 45 rolled his eyes. Precious, he thought. And pretentious, he muttered. No prices were listed, of course. Going to eBay, he typed in broken heart cycles. Nothing. He clicked on advanced settings and looked at completed sales. One hit only. An ornate and artistic looking mixedy frame was the only result. It was a distinctive looking bike, he had to admit. Somehow it managed to look classic and reimagined at the same time. Lines curved in slightly unexpected ways, but ended at immaculate custom lug work. A high-end machine for sure. He looked at the price. It was listed for $7,000, but beneath it had said best offer accepted. Damn, he said aloud. It made sense to him that a few of this brand of bike would be in one neighborhood. People talk to each other seeing a bike like that will make other people jelly and want it. Then all of a sudden you have a club of riders who all go to the park and on Sunday they ride around together showing off. He would go check out the neighborhood Mr. Vince had mentioned to him to do some recon. The neighborhood was nice but young. He saw a lot of younger couples but not many kids. He noted the bikes were very boutique -y. Too bad he couldn't steal for quantity in this neighborhood. The bikes he saw had expensive locks, but the bikes themselves were not just vintage, they were quality vintage. Instead of just an old steel Raleigh, there was a rare Carlton-made frame. Not just an older British three-speed, there was a handmade Pashley Sovereign that was chained to a fence and had three locks on it. The Brooks seat alone would be worth a $100 bill all day long for a quick snip and a few turns of an Allen wrench. It seems every lock style he had ever seen on Kickstarter was here. Titanium locks, U-locks, folding locks, locks that were part of the seat, it didn't matter. If he brought his oversized insulated hoodie, he could use his battery-powered angle grinder and cut through them all. The hoodie would hide the sparks and deaden the noise, as would a well-placed backpack or shopping bag. He would look like he was unlocking his bike to the casual observer. If someone got closer, it wouldn't matter anyway because he'd be gone in less than a minute or two. The angle grinder hung under his hoodie on a neck strap, just a slight bulge to anyone walking past. As he was walking, he turned a corner into a cul-de-sac and saw it. On the sleeve of his jacket, he had cleverly placed sharpie marker lines he used to check frame sizes as he knelt to tie his shoe. It looked close to a 57.5 because he couldn't put his body right next to it, but it was probably close enough to a 58. And it was maroon red. Red was good news and bad news. Good news because it was the color that the customer wanted, but bad news because it was flashy and catches attention. Red is risky, he learned early on. Red stands out. He quickly got up from tying his shoe and kept walking. In his phone, he marked the location and time. A few houses down, he saw a green one. It was a smaller frame, though. It was behind the gate of a small garden area in front of a walk-up. The owner for this one wasn't taking any chances. There were two beefy NYC-rated yellow and black U-locks and a chain that looked like it came off of a battleship bolted to some wrought iron something or other. Undoubtedly, the person took it in at night, but this was the setup they used when they knew they were going back out at night that day. That makes two, and the only two he had ever seen in his life. He saw no more. He walked home to his apartment, noting a couple of other bikes on the way, but mostly preoccupied with how much he would be able to ask Mr. Vince for without scaring him off. He went back dressed differently the next day. Once early in the morning and again in the evening. The cul-de-sac was bikeless in the morning visit. He had expected that. These expensive bikes went indoors at night. 
In the early evening, only a couple of bikes were out. Those who planned to go out on errands before bed, he told himself. Even they were secure. One or two had titanium locks. Discouraging for amateur thieves, he smiled, but not for me. He knew cyclists tended to be creatures of habit. If a cyclist finds a convenient space to lock up their ride, and it doesn't get stolen, they will often return to that same place again and again. Two days later, he would return. If it was there, he would lift it then. He mapped out a route to get to his storage locker. He didn't like the red, so along the route, he had stuffed a few paper towel rolls, splitting them lengthwise, creating a temporary camouflage. People would think he was odd or worried about scratching his bike, but much of the bright and shiny red would be masked by flat, light-absorbing brown of the cardboard. He stashed them two miles away down a side street with a few windows only behind the dumpster. As soon as he slipped on those, he could breathe easier. The day finally came. He made his way to the neighborhood. He watched from far across the street. Yes, the bike was there. He knew confidence was camouflage. Rookies and drug addicts walked closely past before awkwardly turning and returning to steal the bike, drawing lots of attention. He knew he had one shot to walk right up to it as if it was his. If he looked confident, and as if he owned the bike, it could be his. He was really proud of another trademark touch of his, which was to put a water bottle next to him. He put a water bottle conspicuously besides him. As suspicious passers-by weighed up the situations, they would think to themselves, what thief would have a bottle of water? That must be his bike. He put the bottle in his backpack down. He looked at the lock. It was good. Probably cost a hundred bucks, but was no match for the angle grinder with a diamond cutting wheel. He was through it in 40 seconds. He let the grinder fall hanging from a net strap under his oversized hoodie and puffy coat. His outfit was a perfect disguise. As he bent to pick up the water bottle, he glanced at the head badge. He actually heard the words out loud as he read them. Please don't. Please don't. The words were engraved in the two silver broken heart halves that he looked at online. He blinked, a little shaken, but he couldn't stop. To stop now would be deadly. He put his foot over, adjusted his backpack, and pedaled as fast as one could without drawing attention for being too fast. He heard the words a couple more times as he turned a corner. Please don't. Please don't. The red color was bright and it was making him nervous. Even though it was going from partly cloudy to overcast, the wind was picking up, he'd need to slap those cardboard tubes on soon. The pre-applied double-sided tape would hold them on well, even in this wind. He rolled towards the lonely street ahead. As he started to turn into it, he noticed for the first time and the last time that he couldn't free his hands from the bars. What happened next happened so quickly, he didn't even have a chance to scream. He tried desperately to pull his hands away from the bike, but they just melted further into the grips. He couldn't see where his hands stopped and the grips began. His legs were pulled towards the seat stays and stuck to the frame, and his feet were pulled backwards towards the axles and they started melting into him. His spine arched downward and was pulled into the top tube. His arms stretched and bent as his face was pulled towards the stem and head tube. His forearms stretched and became one with the forks and his shoulders were absorbed into the handlebars. If anyone had seen this, it would have seemed that he had become one with the bike, and while the bike looked basically the same now, the rider had totally disappeared. The bike carried on for a curiously long time. Riderless, it somehow stayed balanced for almost a hundred feet before anticlimatically and calmly coming to a stop, falling gently onto its side. There it sat, innocently laying undamaged on the side. A few drops of rain began to fall. Other than that, there was stillness. A few minutes later, a hand reached down to pick up the bike. Ah, I see you found one for me. He righted the bicycle and dusted off a very slight scuff on the bar tape from the fall. He looked down at the head badge and stared intently at the two silver broken heart halves. The words please and don't have been replaced with two simply engraved eyes. 
Mr. Vince looked directly into those eyes. Even though they didn't move, they conveyed anger, fear, and confusion. Mr. Vince sighed. Eh, bittersweet feelings right now, and it always is. I don't know how you can hear me or what type of magic this is, but somehow it seems fitting that I should at least tell you the why, even if I can't tell you the how. Mr. Vins mounted the bike and stopped, seeming to admire the bicycle he's just stood over. <laughs> Good job. The size is perfect, though I do prefer the pewter color. It will do. It will do. Mr. Vins began to pedal. What had been 45, a.k.a. Mike, the bike thief, felt the road directly. He could hear and see somehow. He felt both claustrophobic and exposed at the same time. He felt his heart would explode from panic, but he didn't have a heart anymore. It just wasn't there. He was just the tubes of steel, wheels, spokes, chain, and tires. He wasn't breathing anymore either, but he didn't need to. Any panic he felt was offset by his inability to physically express that panic in any way. He was not in control. A bike cannot steer itself or pedal its own cranks. Mr. Vince steered. Mr. Vince pedaled. He went along because he was trapped in the bike. More, more correctly, he was trapped as a bike. Mr. Vince began to talk as he pedaled. Well, you see, I am older than I look. Years ago, when I was younger, my wife and I had plans to start a family. <laughs> she loved cycling much more than me. She also loved to bike and how it made her feel. 45 saw the mostly vacant streets they were riding down, but it didn't matter. He couldn't talk, he couldn't move, other than as the bicycle. Even if he saw somebody he knew, there was no way of letting him know what had happened. She had wanted to do one more long charity ride before getting pregnant and had trained extensively on her one and only bike. She called it her heart bike because it had a heart decal over where the brand name would be. It was nothing special, but it fit her like a glove. Well, the day of the charity ride was coming up, and when she stopped to use the restroom somewhere, someone stole her bike, even though she had locked it with a very good lock but cost almost as much as the bike had when she bought it used. She was heartbroken. It was the night before the ride, and knowing it would be months, maybe a year, before she could ride along to her again, we called all of her friends. One of them had a bike she could use, but said it hadn't been tuned up in a while. The ride started early in the morning, so there was no other choice. We took the bike, agreeing that she would take it easy. I looked over everything that I knew the best I could, but I wasn't a bike mechanic. It looked okay. It could have just been the bike itself, a problem we didn't notice, maybe. It could have just been her being unfamiliar on it. But she took a fall about 10 miles out after the start. It didn't seem such a bad fall, the old folks had said. But that was it. She was gone. All because of a bike thief the day before. Had she had her own bike, I'm sure she wouldn't have had such a slip. She never crashed on her own bike. It was like it was a part of her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, it's, it is like her bike was a part of her. I seem to have made a pun, given our immediate circumstances. <laughs> oh, well. Son, no one can be sure, but sometimes when I work on a donated bike that may have at one point been stolen, I swear I hear a little scream, and I make sure we check the registry or donate that particular bike. It's just a feeling I get sometimes. Creepy. Well, good night, son. Hey, by the way, what was your second choice for a career? Therapist. That's, that's a good choice. That's a better choice. Love you, good night. Good night.
Well, thank you for coming along for the ride on another episode of Bike Karma. Really appreciate you listening. It's um, time to thank all the people who helped out with this episode. I'd like to thank Alice Nelson from down in Florida, Fred Thomas, uh, Taryn Brown, my son. I'd like to thank Anna Jane, my daughter, who did some great original artwork to go along with the story about the bike that steals people. Uh, you can go see that up on Instagram or Facebook. Uh, and also, as always, Mobjack and Keller Glass for their awesome opening and ending music. On iTunes, thank you very much for the review from Gromdad2000 and Ostro84. Also, like to thank for following on Podbeam, IJ Simpson40 and Crazy Remuck. Guess I'm saying that right. And as always, want to thank all the listeners out there. You can check us out on all these places. You can go to Instagram to see a bunch of pictures that go along with the shows. You can go to Facebook. You can go to iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean. If you like the show, the best thing you can do, which is much appreciated, is to give me a review. Supposedly, somehow, it helps to help in the search ratings. Uh, to follow on the different platforms. I really appreciate it. And next time we've got stories about BMX bikes. We also go on the road and pick up a used washing machine by bicycle <laughs> using Craigslist. Carry it six miles into Hartford with Chris Brown. Yeah, it's like the Portlandia skip, but in real life. If you've got an idea for a story, please email me at bikekarmaguy at gmail.com or through any of the other DMs look forward to seeing you again next time till then keep a wheel bike karma and all the content are the intellectual property of thomas brown all rights for images stories and otherwise are reserved